Our second scripture reading today comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be reading chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1530. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thus ends our reading of God's inerrant word. May all who hear it be a part of the many for whom Jesus gave his life as a ransom. It was the year 1887, and the Lord Acton was having a spirited debate with the Archbishop Creighton. Now, you may not know who these two characters are in history. Maybe you do. Maybe you're a history buff. But the Lord Acton, he was a historian of his own right, a gifted one at that, and one who knew much more about church history than this Archbishop did. But the bishop saw himself as a protector of Rome. And and he would not abide with any degrading words concerning the papal line. He thought that the actions of the, the past popes should not be criticized, even if those actions were deemed evil through contemporary lenses. Needless to say, the Lord Acton thought otherwise, arguing that all men, whether in authority or not, should be held to the same moral standard set forth by God. And thus, those who are in power should should not be exempt. Rather, they should be held to a high standard. For as one's authority grows, so does the temptation to abuse that authority. And in defending this view, he, he penned these famous words. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Jesus knew this all too well. 
And in our passage for today, we we see that even his disciples were having a tough time escaping the allure that comes with authority. But before we jump in, I want to highlight for us some, some of the key points that lead up to this moment. As they will set the stage, so to speak, for our story for today. If you recall, it was in chapter 16 where we saw Peter give that great confession of who Jesus is. He said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was after that confession that Jesus revealed to his disciples for the first time his primary mission. Look at Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And if you remember, it it was this same Peter, the, the man who gave that great confession, who then pulled Jesus aside and questioned his master's plan. Look, look at what he says in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Peter didn't get it. As much as he understood who Jesus was, he did not understand what Jesus was about. And thus, Christ had to rebuke him. Look at, look at the next verse. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Well, Jesus used this moment to to teach all of his disciples a lesson. And he told told them that in order to follow him, they must first deny themselves and take up their own cross. That if they wanted to find life, they must first lose it. But this wasn't the only time when Jesus had proclaimed his mission to his disciples. We witness a a, a second occurrence in in the very next chapter, chapter 17, shortly after the transfiguration. Jesus had just come down from from that mountain, and what he had found at the bottom was this chaotic scene. For there was this demon-possessed boy whom his disciples could not heal. Now what you need to understand is that that casting out demons was something that, that these men could do beforehand. Jesus had given to them that authority. And yet their faith had been rattled after hearing about Jesus' mission. And so in verse 17, we find Jesus saying these words. O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. He then healed the boy by removing the demon. Now when the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't do it, Jesus told them plainly, because you have so little faith. And then once again, once they were alone, he reminded them of his mission. Look look at verses 22 and 23. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, 
the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. You see, not only were these men not fully grasping Christ's mission, but because of that fact, it was affecting their ministry. They couldn't do what they had done before because their faith had been shaken. And and even after this second time of hearing about Christ's mission, now they were filled with grief. They just couldn't understand it. And and the reason they couldn't understand it was because they they didn't have their minds on the things of God, but on the things of men. And now today we see Christ giving them another reminder. Passover was fast approaching and Jesus would soon be going up to Jerusalem, the very city where he would be completing this mission. The time was coming and and had now come where where he would no longer flee from conflict, but, but, but face those religious leaders head on. And his disciples, they needed to be ready. And that's why we see this third reminder, this this third warning. Look, Look again at chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Once again, we see Jesus taking his disciples aside in order to give them this warning. This this message was for them and them alone, at least for the time being. You see, they were the ones that Jesus would be entrusting with his kingdom. And so they must have a kingdom mindset. They must know his mission. But why was this message so hard to grasp? Why were these 12 men not getting it? In Romans 12, verse 2, we read this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In this verse, we see the clash of two worldviews. There is a pattern of this world, and then there is God's will. And the way that God has designed our minds is that we are shaped and influenced by by what we put in them. Think about the the people that you know who seem to be fixated on politics. It seems to be all they talk about. And depending on which networks they they, they ensconce themselves in, after a while they, they start to sound just like the host of the shows that they're listening to. So if, if your channel is stuck on Fox News, your mind will begin to think like Tucker Carlson. But if you prefer CNN, then, then your thoughts are going to be molded by people like Don Lemon. 
But these things don't happen overnight. It, it takes time to be shaped, to be influenced. It takes repetition before a, a person begins to understand things. Jesus was trying to train his disciples to, to start thinking with a kingdom mindset and not a worldly one. He wanted to renew their minds so that they would no longer be influenced by the patterns of this world, but would be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And this was why he was repeating this message over and over again, because they were still stuck in that worldly mindset and because of that, they were blind to Christ's mission. God's will was hidden from their eyes. And this becomes all too evident when we look at our next verses. Look at verses 20 and 21. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. There's this sitcom that Kim and I like to watch called The Goldbergs. Anybody ever see that? A couple of you? It's, it's, it's about this Jewish family living in the suburbs in America, is set in the 1980s. And the mother of this family is this very, very outspoken woman. And she will fight tooth and nail to see that her children have the best in life. In fact, she makes such a stink about it that, that when her kids' teachers or, her, or their principals see her coming, they, they, they will run and hide. They're fearful of her. For they know that, that she will never, ever give up the fight. And that eventually they will end up caving to her demands. Now while this mom should be commended for her fierce love of her children, she doesn't always know what is best for them. Or what will help them to mature. Perhaps this is similar to what we are seeing here today with the mother of James and John. Here was this woman who wanted the best for her two sons. But she was approaching Jesus without a kingdom mindset. She had been shaped by the patterns of this world. And because of that, she did not know what was best for her sons. But before you think that the sons uh, were exempt from blame... They knew exactly what their mother was doing. And in fact, I'm pretty sure they encouraged it. I mean, why fight your own battles when you can have your mom do it for you, am I right? And so here we are, this, this mom and her two boys kneeling before Jesus, asking to have the, these prominent positions in his kingdom. Grant one to sit on your right and the other to sit on your left. Again, to fully understand this, we, we need some context. 
If you recall, after the encounter with that rich young man who who refused to leave his wealth behind to follow Jesus, it was Peter who asked Jesus this question. Look Look at Matthew 19, verse 27. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What an image, am I right? Twelve thrones, sitting next to Jesus, being in those positions of power and prominence. I mean, this this imagery is what prompted this question. For to sit on Jesus' right or to sit on his left meant that these two sons would have the seats of influence. They would have Jesus' ear. Now think about our situation. Jesus had just reminded these men of his impending death. And all they could think about was jockeying for position in his kingdom. While Christ looked to the cross, they looked to status and power. If there ever was a a disconnect between Jesus' words and their ears, this was it. And it's all because they were still stuck in the patterns of this world. Let's see how Jesus responds to them. Look at verse 22. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. All too often, it is the ignorant that seeks leadership and power. People people tend to think that it would be so great to gain some type of position of authority, to be the president, to be the CEO, to be the king. Yet what they fail to realize is that those positions require sacrifice. A sacrifice that most are not willing to make. And these are just worldly possessions. And the kingdom, the calling to suffer is even greater. And so when Jesus said to these two men, you don't know what you are asking, they didn't. They had no clue. They were only thinking about what what sitting on the right or sitting on the left would do for them the prestige that it would bring, not to mention all the benefits. They never stopped to consider that those two seats would require a sacrifice from them. They desired power. They desired authority. But power and authority comes at a cost, particularly in the kingdom. And to sit on Christ's right or to sit on his left entails suffering. It is to drink the cup that he drinks. 
It is to take up your own cross and follow Jesus towards death. Dear friends, if you desire to reside in some authoritative role, know this. There will be a sacrifice that you will have to make in order to do that role well. If you aspire to a position of power and you want to be faithful to that power, then it will require of you pain and suffering. And if you want to be a leader in God's kingdom, then you must be willing to lose your life for the sake of your king. You must be willing to drink the cup that Jesus drank. Of course, in their pride, these two brothers thought that they could handle whatever would be coming. Sure, Lord, we can drink that cup. But they were not ready. In fact, none of the disciples were. For as we'll see when we, when we get to the passion narrative, each one would flee once Jesus had been betrayed and arrested. But just because these men were, were weak didn't mean that Christ was done with them. For there would come a time when both of these brothers would drink that cup. James would become the first apostle to face martyrdom. And John, well, he would eventually be boiled in oil and then exiled to an island named Patmos. But as for being on Christ's right or on his left... That wasn't Jesus' decision to make. That was up to the Father. Well, you can imagine what the other disciples thought when they heard what took place. And let's just say they didn't look too kindly on these sons of Zebedee. Look at verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, this indignation was not from some sense of piety, nor from their great humility. Rather, it came from a jealousy and a fear that, that they might lose out. I mean, the early bird gets the worm. Am I right? Perhaps, perhaps these ten men were, were now kicking themselves, thinking, why didn't I do this? I should have thought of that first. You see, these, these other disciples were just as confused as those two brothers. They too wanted power and glory for themselves. For they still viewed the kingdom from a worldly point of view. I mean, they had to have, or, or they wouldn't have gotten indignant, right? They wouldn't have cared. Fine, you have the position, I don't really care. But they did care. And the reason they cared was because they lacked a kingdom mindset. They had yet to understand Christ's mission. But Jesus was about to give these men another lesson on what it means to be great in the kingdom. Look at, look at verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we see it laid out, do we not? Just as there are two worldviews, there are also two paths to greatness. There is the world's path that, that says you must take what you can get by sheer force. And then there's the way of the kingdom, which says that you must relinquish any desire for power and give of yourself. The path of the world was how the Romans gained power. They, they had this survival of the fittest mentality. First, they would conquer. They would send in their armies and overwhelm their opponents until they surrendered. Second, they would oppress. They would tax the people in order to feed the beast. And for those who didn't pay, their property would be seized and as they sent them off to debtor's prison. And finally, the Romans would deceive. They would make the people think that, that, that they were actually being helped when in reality they were being pushed down. They called this the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. See how gracious we are by ruling over you? We have brought to your land stability. You can live in freedom now, free from fear. This is what Jesus meant by lording it over them. It is that smug mentality of superiority that, that the Romans exuded. It is using a, a position of authority for personal gain and to bolster one's pride. But kingdom leadership is altogether different. For it has nothing to do with personal ambition. Rather, its focus is on the needs of, of people around you. Think about all the different positions of authority that we have in our society today. Why were those roles created? Why do we have a, a president? In order that he might serve. Serve the people of this country by carrying out and executing the laws of our nation. Or think about police officers. What's the motto of the police officers? Todd, you know, right? To serve and protect. What about teachers? What is their role? They're serving their students. And the way they do so is by educating them. And there are many, many more positions of authority where the main purpose is to serve. And yet these can become corrupted when we take the focus off of serving and place it on selfish ambitions. When we lord it over them. But in the kingdom, selfish ambition has no place. If you want to become great, you must become a servant. If you want to be first, you must become a slave. In other words, those who are great in God's eyes, they don't worry about what title they have or about what authority that they wield. Instead, they focus on the needs of those around them and how they can serve those needs. And if you think about it, this is exactly what your king did for you. 
He did not come to be served, but to serve. He became the least of the least, a slave to all, as he gave his life as a ransom. And this is what we read in our first scripture reading, when when Paul talked to the Philippians about what it means to have a servant heart. Look at Philippians 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in, the, in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. As you take those words in, I hope you realize that Jesus didn't have to do any of that. He he could have just stayed where he was in perfect fellowship with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. He, He could have remained in his lofty position and let us rot until we were all dead and then sentenced to hell. And you know what? He, he would have been perfectly just in so doing. But that's not what he did. No. Rather, he committed that ultimate act of service. As he gave his life for a people that were undeserving. He went up to Jerusalem where he was betrayed. He was handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they condemned him to death and in turn turned him over to the Gentiles where he was mocked and he was flogged and he was crucified. And he did all of this in order to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't do this for himself, for his own glory. No, he did it to meet the needs of the lowly. He became a slave in order to bring salvation to you and to me. And now he is asking of you and me to do the same thing. No matter where you are at in life, whether you are in some high position of authority or whether you have no position at all, there is always someone around you who needs your service. Someone who could use your help. Will you serve them? Will you set aside your pride and take on the role of a slave? This, this is the way of the kingdom. For this is the way of the king, the one who came not to be served, but to serve. Let us pray. Father, we confess to you that all too often we desire the title more than the work. We desire the authority more than the service that is required. Change our hearts. Change them to be more like your sons. Fill us with your Holy Spirit as he renews our minds and conforms us into the image of Jesus. 
Let us follow in his footsteps as he became a slave to all when he went to the cross. And help us to take up our own cross as we meet the needs of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.